freedom apart from morality, but I would also add, apart from a morality grounded in the truth of who we are as human beings, can only lead in the long run to immiserization. And again, that is what we are seeing today. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Stephen Shavura. Uh, he is a senior lecturer at Campion College in Sydney. He has authored many books. He's also a contributor at Cauldron Pool, where we are from. He is a contributor at The Australian and also The Spectator. And he's honestly one of my favourite commentators online. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for coming on, Steve. It's fantastic to be on the show, Evelyn. Thanks for having me. Now, I feel like there are so many things that I really would love to pick your brain with. As I said in the introduction, I have followed you for a really long time. I really value your commentary on many things. You are well-spoken and you're well-educated and you're a great bloke. And I thought we could kick it off with um, something that I watched of yours a little while ago uh, called the Kairos, Kairos moment. I'm sure I butchered that, but you could probably go into it a bit more. But, you know, it was a great sort of um, lecture that you did about culture and about the change in culture and our involvement in that. And, you know, I'd love for you to sort of explain to people who are listening right now what that actually means and if you can kind of elaborate on that a bit further. Well, thank you. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, so the, um, the lecture was called, yeah, the Kairos moment. And, and I take the word Kairos uh, from the New Testament. Uh, the, the, the Greeks seem to have had two words for, for time. One was uh, chronos or chronos, as the modern Greeks would say, which kind of just means sort of time in general, time in the abstract. But then they had this other word, uh, Kairos, which means an opportune, an opportune time or a significant time. And it's used uh, in the New Testament. And, and it's, it's my opinion, uh, based on theology and also based on sort of observing the world today and history, that we're actually in a Kairos moment right now in the West, in which we're ready for a great cultural shift to take place. And the big question is whether or not it will be Christians who really take the reins in this cultural shift and bring it in a direction um, that, you know, God willing, uh, you know, we would want it to go in, which would be better uh, for, for everyone in general, a direction uh, in, in which we start uh, thinking and living uh, in accordance with God's teachings about the human condition, God's teachings about how we relate to one another and how we relate to him uh, as revealed in the Bible. And I think that we are in that moment right now uh, in the West and, and in Australia as well, a Kairos moment. Would you say that we've been in a Kairos moment before, like in modern sort of history and culture? Or is this like a new thing that, you know, that we have to take back? Well, I think Kairos moments sort of arise uh, throughout history when uh, sort of uh, cultural conditions uh, are such that people are looking for a change. Uh, in, in a sense, the most spectacular Kairos moment in history was with the conversion of the Roman Empire and the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Uh, that was a moment in history where Rome had become very decadent. Uh, Roman morals were very degraded and debased. Um, there was um, incredible inhumanity uh, running rife. And then sort of Christianity enters the scene 
And Christianity offers things that just were not available in Rome at the time. It, it offers purity. It offers self-restraint. It offers hope. Uh, it offers a compassion uh, in, in, a, in an empire where these things uh, just seem to be seem to have vanished. And consequently, Christianity offers this uh, far more persuasively uh, and, and more spectacularly in the deeds of Christians themselves, that people just became attracted to Christ over a period of, of 300 years. And that wound up basically creating a revolution in the Roman Empire. That, that was a, a Kairos moment uh, that was taking place at that time. It's, it's basically when, when culture, and, and put it another way, where people within a culture are, are sort of living through the miserable consequences of a way of thinking that has departed from scriptural truths. They're living in it and they start looking for an alternative. They start looking for answers and Christians are there with the answers and the time sort of is ripe for a cultural change. And I, and I do actually think, um, I mean, that's certainly what happened in the first century uh, in, in, in the Roman Empire and it was something that sort of extended for a few centuries. And I do think it's, it's happening again today. Hmm. I feel like there's a real secular movement right now with our culture. It's kind of overtaken, you know, those Christian values that you, that you spoke about. I, I also believe that a lot of our modern culture is just states of rebellion, similar to like what you mentioned with the Roman Empire in terms of when, when something doesn't work, then the next generation or culture rebels against that. And it's almost like a cycle that we continue to go in and out of, particularly in politics, you can see when there's a really progressive government, like what I guess we're seeing now, there are more conservatives and more people who understand freedoms and these Christian scriptural ideologies that are kind of stepping up and going, well, that's actually not working. Here's an alternative option. And then you can see throughout history when there's a really conservative government in for a while, the progressives rebel against that and say that's not enough, that's not enough freedom and we want more and this. And it's sort of like this cycles that we go in and out of. Um, would you say that you can sort of see that with modern history and that we're kind of in a cycle now where we need to um, have something different, an alternative culture to what we're seeing today? Oh uh, yeah, there's a, you've actually there's actually a, a, you know a lot going on uh, in what you were just saying. So I'll try to respond to it all. Um, I mean, I I appreciate that the term secularism, and but I, I prefer to think of the age that we're in and sort of increasingly going into as as what we might call a neo paganism, and and, right. and why I sort of prefer that is that I I don't know that. I, I think that people uh, in history become necessarily more or less religious. I think that we are quite religious by nature, at least a lot of people are. And I think that with the decline of Christianity, with the decline of Christianity's sort of social significance, um, you know, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is often called secularization. We, we wouldn't want to make the mistake in thinking, and not that you've made this mistake, Evelyn, but we wouldn't want to make the mistake in thinking that when, when people abandon Christianity, they become religionless. Uh, that's simply not true. As people abandoned Christianity, many of them took up alternative religions. They took up new forms of new age. Uh, others took up other things that, that really mirror religions. So they took up ideological causes. Um, they took up sort of social justice and, um, and, and sort of a critical theory, cultural Marxism and things like that. 
Um, and then there were others that, that took up very sort of ritualistic forms of lifestyle, yoga, and with all its mm. um, uh, Eastern mysticism teachings and, and, and other things uh, that, that people took up, a, a, a kind of quasi-religion of the environment within, with environmentalism and sort of a, a, sort of a, 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 a worshipping of the environment an obsession with the body, which we have today, an obsession with sex and sexuality, um, an increasing tendency to uh, deny distinctions between um, uh, the sexes and between the creation and and human beings and and, and even between creation and God. These are things that we're moving into now culturally, but these are things that the early Christians were moving out of. So the early Christians were moving out of a kind of ancient paganism. We're moving back into uh, paganism. And there's a sense in which once you cast off uh, the truth of God, then the natural condition for human beings is a kind of paganism. And this is, of course, all taught by the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter one, where he talks about, you know, we, we know that there is a God and yet we sort of block out our knowledge of God. We repress that knowledge. But do we become religionless, according to Paul? We most certainly do not. We start worshipping other things. We start worshipping the creation rather than the creator. And so yeah. first thing I would say is I prefer to call us ours a neo-pagan age. Uh, rather than a secular age. Um, uh, But second, um, I do think that there is also a sort of counter movement to some of this um, in the operation. And you sort of mentioned how conservatives in in, in a context of what what you called sort of a more secular age, if you like, um, they sort of become the new radicals. They become the sort of the more countercultural ones. And, and I absolutely see that that is going on. I mean, some people use the expression that conservatism is the new punk rock. And I actually think that's <laughs> the case. I think conservatism is kind of edgy. Uh, it, 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 you know, it, it, is, it is quite countercultural. Um, and, and we're seeing uh, massive, massive audiences for alternative media Uh, which, I mean, nowadays the term alternative media uh, doesn't really have the meaning that it might have had 10 years ago when a lot of this stuff was starting up. Nowadays, the so-called alternative media or the so-called dark web has literally millions of viewers worldwide. And as you know, you know, uh, Stephen Crowder in the US um, uh, during uh, during the um, 2020 presidential election and, and subsequently with other huge things actually had greater audiences than CNN. Um, you know, uh, you know, there, there, there are cauldron pool articles that would be shared more widely than an article from the Australian. Uh, so, um, and of course, you've got the the phenomenal success of of the Daily Wire in the US and and other media. And what it indicates is that, in actual fact, as you suggested, there is a backlash, if you like, against this sort of uh, secular slash sort of neo pagan. Um, uh, sort of cultural moment that we're that we're also going through, uh, which is sort of defined in terms again of a sort of obsession with sexuality as being the most important aspect of our identities, uh, an obsession with with a form of individualism and liberty that won't see itself restrained by objective nature, which can only be to the detriment. Of, of of human beings, so that is, you know, I'm free to be whatever I can, whatever I want. Well, I mean, yeah, that all sounds fine, but as long as you accept that there are just certain natural and psychological facts about us as human beings within which you want to sort of 
uh, confine the aspirations of your freedom. Uh, and so in other words, no, you're not free to be a boy if you're a biological girl and vice versa. Uh, well, you know, actually, uh, no, you're not free to live basically a happy life uh, thinking that you can uh, do everything and, and live the same way that a man would live or vice versa that a woman would. There are just brute psychological mm -hmm. facts uh, which define who we are. Uh, and again, that, that's another aspect of neo-paganism to kind of um, uh, sort of deny these kinds of things and just see ourselves as just unlimitedly free. Um, mm. And the results of that are something that's very much feeding into this Kairos moment. I, and, and basically, and another, another manifestation of the backlash against this is the phenomenon that is the, the, the Jordan Peterson moment that we've been going through um, that was at, sort of at its strongest about you know, three, four years ago. I mean, Jordan Peterson is critiquing so much of the, the sort of the, the hyper-individualistic um, delusional about our nature as human beings and men and women and sort of power-hungry emphasis of cultural Marxism, critical theory. Uh, and he's, he's got a, a massive, massive audience among men and women. Um, mm. And so he's, he himself is an indication that there is emerging in this sort of neo-pagan environment that we're in a counter push against it. And my thesis with the Kairos moment uh, lecture that I gave, which I think I actually gave at the 2019 Australian Christian Lobby um, conference in, in, in Sydney, and, and, and it's available um, on uh, YouTube for anyone who wants to watch it. My thesis is simply this. It's, it, it's simple, but I think it holds water that God created us all with a particular kind of nature. God created human nature. He created us male and female. There is a nature that we have. And when the Bible talks to us and tells us what our nature is, and when the Bible lays down laws that we're supposed to live by, God is telling us these things because they're for our good. Uh, when God tells us how we ought to think about sex, how we ought to think about our identity as male and female. He's not telling us this uh, for no reason. He's telling us this because we have a particular nature that if we live according to his laws and we think according to the way he tells us to think about sexuality and gender, then we'll, that we'll actually be much happier than if we don't. Hmm. So he gives us these rules uh, so we will actually be happier. And so what that means is that when culture starts to shift away from the ways of thinking and the ways of living that are revealed to us by God in the Bible for our own happiness, what that must lead to over time is what we might call immiserization. That is people becoming increasingly miserable and unhappy because they're living not in accordance with their true human nature as revealed in scripture, but in accordance with a fake human nature that's been sort of propagated to them through various media, through various institutions and things like that. And so people sort of at the macro social level over time become more miserable. We're seeing shocking rates of depression uh, these days. And over time, they start looking for alternatives, much as the ancient Romans were doing. And the key to all of this is that we as Christians are there at that cultural moment, ready with answers. But I would say as importantly as ready with answers to questions about what's gone wrong, 
ready with lives that are demonstrating the very principles and the very truths that we are trying to convince other people of. So we as Christians must have our own individual lives in order, our own family lives in order, and our own institutional lives in order. And this will be a spectacular declaration to the truth of Christianity, to the reality of the risen Christ and the presence of Holy Spirit. Uh, in our lives. And, and there's a promise in, in that, that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 that, you know, when you are being light and when you are being salt, that people will see our good deeds and give praise to our Father in heaven. And so, in many ways, I'm something of what I constantly say, a pessimistic optimist. I do actually think there'll be wonderful things uh, ahead in the future, but I think that very often, given the human condition, we need to go through some pretty bad things to yeah. realize that something is wrong and to start looking for something else. And the imperative is for Christians to be ready with the answers and, and, and the, the right kinds of lives to seize that Kairos moment and take it in a direction um, that, you know, you know, that, that we really want to see um, sort of honor the kingdom of God uh, yeah. on earth, really. Yeah. Amen. Honestly, like you articulated probably so, so much of my thoughts about the subject, because we all know that nature hates a void. And when there's a void, we feel the need to fill it. And unfortunately, if Christians aren't there in that Kairos moment, offering them the ultimate filling of that void, which is Christ. Like, what are they going to be filling that with? The government's going to try and fill it. They're more than happy to step in and fill that void. These um, paganism type, uh, you know, alternative measures and ways that will more than happily step in and fill that void. And then we're back to square one. We're exactly where we are. We're just at a different and varying degree of where we end it, but it's the same process. So I do agree wholeheartedly that we need to offer solutions. We need to not only complain and give answers to why we're here, but we need to point to something greater and we need to point to something better. And we especially need to live that, like you said, ourselves as an example. And I think, you know, when we do look outside of our four walls of our home and we do see this neo-paganism and we do see the world falling apart our priority is our homes is our hearts is our families and you know I think it is a cultural thing it's a deliberate thing that they do try to break the home and the and the sanctity of that home because when you have a weak home you have a weak nation and that's when these other voids like the government and these other things can take control um, so I, I do like that and something that worries me about the alternative to what we're seeing today is the other alternative, which is basically the same thing, but um, at a different degree. I think that freedom without virtue is chaos. And I think this idea, this libertarian idea about all freedoms is actually a misunderstanding of what that inherited nature of freedom is. You know, we've been given freedom by God's grace because we were made in the image of him, in his likeness. And, and as Per that, we have these God-given rights, these human rights that he bestows upon us. Um, so I do think that Kairos moment, super important. I love it. I think that we need to, as Christians, be out there. I'm not sure what your thought about um, this. I tweeted once that I can't remove theology from my politics. And I said, my theology is what determines my politics. It's like the oxygen that I breathe. I can't separate the two. And I got a lot of backlash from that, Steve. A lot of people sort of said to me, um, it was really wrong of me to try and include the two together. But my theology 
and my understanding of theology is my understanding of God. And like you mentioned before, people, my, my God is, is Christ is the only one true God, but a lot of people replace God with other gods. Maybe that's themselves. We're very narcissistic in nature. A lot of people can put themselves as God. A lot of people can put, as you said, social justice causes as their God, as their identity. But basically everybody's theology, everybody's understanding of God is what determines their morality and what determines their vote. Um, And so for me, I can't separate the two. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, whether you agree or or disagree um and yeah yeah oh, again uh, sort of a lot in that um absolutely you're right uh, the, as the old saying goes nature abhors a vacuum uh, so if if people sort of set their sort of christianity away something else will fill that gap and re- and there are almost two ways of dealing with with sort of what you might call a meaning void so some people will will try to fill the meaning void uh, with other things that are supposed to have a lot of meaning as well. Uh, the most spectacular example of that of, of late is sort of uh, social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. And when you actually read critical race theory literature and when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, in many ways it, it imitates quite strongly a lot of Christian rhetoric about sort of searching within yourself for sin, confessing sin publicly, uh, and telling other people that they are sinners as well and that they need to repent. I mean, that's very much at the essence of, um, of a critical race theory, except just replace the word sin with racism. And, and, and in, in a way, critical race theory, um, which is to a large extent sort of a, an American um, phenomenon, uh, well, and, and uh, something that originates very strongly in America out of their own uh, civil rights movement. Um, it, it is a kind of uh, secularized, racialized form of, of, of American Calvinistic evangelicalism. So that is something that's clearly filled the cultural void. Um, and yeah, you're right. The state can take over the role of God and, and people might not know that that has happened, but it has happened in the minds of many, the state or society. So, for example, often when you know people will say, if you say to someone, well, you know, if they say, well, what do you think is the foundation of morality? You might say, well, God's revealed word. And they'll say, no, I don't believe that. And then you, you can ask them, well, what do you think the foundation of morality is? And they will say something like, well, society or the international international laws. And both of those are basically uh, attributing to society, whatever society is, as though, as though society is some monolithic entity with a single opinion. I mean, a ridiculous idea, but let's go with it anyway. You're taking the things that you would attribute to God, a kind of moral infallibility, and putting it on something else, society, or or people might say the law. Well, the law is something declared by the state, and so you're sort of divinizing or you know making uh, the state or society to be God. So something does take that place. Uh, the other way of dealing with the meaning void is by distracting yourself from it. And so what are people doing nowadays to distract themselves? Well, historically, people might turn to alcohol, they might turn to substance abuse, but increasingly now uh, people are basically turning to highly addictive activities uh, like gaming uh, or just pornography. And so that's another actually rather destructive way of dealing with the meaning void um, that sort of um, emerges with with a sort of a God vacuum uh, in people's hearts and minds. And, and again, this is just another aspect that is making our current moment a Kairos moment because there are alternatives yeah. to all of this that Christians themselves need to be living. And just on a very, very quick side note, 
one of the most powerful things Christians can do as a testimony to the reality of the risen Christ and the reality of Holy Spirit, one of the most powerful things they can do is not be addicted to pornography. And which means that the thing that Satan is most interested in is ensuring that Christians are just as addicted um, to pornography as everyone else, because nothing, uh, nothing will will declare to our modern sort of a porn afflicted society more that 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 Christianity is true when Christians as a general rule are just not addicted to this stuff and people will gravitate towards and they'll they'll want uh, what the Christians have now in terms of uh, freedom um I mean this is the thing I mean I, I I try as much as I can not just to talk about freedom. Because if you were to ask me, Steve, um, do you think freedom is good? My in, my first response will be, well, freedom to do what exactly? Yeah. Um, because freedom in the abstract is, is really nothing. Um, I, I, so I don't praise freedom in the abstract. I want to know what people want to do with their freedom. Um, and if someone says, well, I want the freedom to basically stick a syringe in my arm, destroy my life and have that adver adversely affect the people that love me and have raised me, I would say, well, no, that's that's not a freedom um, that you should uh, want to exercise at all, uh, because it actually contravenes your nature as a human being. And that will have the subsequent knock on effects on society. And so, again, freedom devoid from an understanding of what we are as human beings, biologically and psychologically, can only lead to individual uh, immiserization and social immiserization. And so to get back to your point, I guess I'm stating it in another way, that freedom apart from morality, but I would also add apart from a morality grounded in the truth of who we are as human beings can only lead in the long run to immiserization. And again, that is what we are seeing today. Uh, very, very strange things emerging in terms of how people think about uh, gender, uh, strange things emerging in terms of how we think about parenting. I mean, I think Lyle Shelton was spot on during the same-sex marriage debate to say that the real problem with legalizing same-sex marriage is, is what it says about the relationship between parents and children. We're essentially declaring to the world that it doesn't matter whether a son uh, has a father or not, or whether a daughter has a mother, or whether either of them have a mother or a father. You can have two of one, and it's just as good. And that is just psychologically, biologically ridiculous. It is false. It's a lie. And we don't object to it just because it's a lie. We object to it because when you base public policy on Un, uh, on incorrect understandings of what it is to be a human being, what it is to be male and female, real people in the real world suffer. Children will be brought up not knowing who one of their parents is. Um, and that will have uh, an effect on their subsequent development. Um, and so, yeah, uh, freedom, uh, freedom sort of untethered from a morality grounded in truth and reality uh, that is dangerous. It's, it's at best, it's just license, but at worst, it is just positively dangerous. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm not sure what your thoughts are, um, but throughout the last couple of years, um, we've had a lot of people come, I guess, in that counterculture spectrum. We've had like a lot of people who weren't privy to what's going on behind the scenes and the, the overall agendas. And I guess these destructive ideologies, we've, we've had them sort of come 
to the light, so to speak. And and we've had a lot of people start speaking out against the government. We've had a lot of people like have a look at the rallies or throughout Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, across, across Australia. There's hundreds of thousands of people. Back, you, you mentioned Lyle Shelton and, and you know, the same-sex marriage debate. That's when I started actually publicly commentating because I was similarly uh, aligned with that truth in that, you know, um, I could foresee the trajectory of, of where all of that was going to end. And as a Christian, I, I did feel obligated to speak up. So I kind of have been speaking about it for, for a number of years, but I feel like we're seeing with this rebellion a lot of different people sort of uh, coming into this sort of side of politics or culture, I guess, so to speak. There is an idea that the one tent uh, sort of mentality is, is actually dangerous because once we defeat the government, which I hope that we do, and when I say defeat, I mean, you know, ending the mandates and um, going back to having personal freedom and human rights again in Australia, not needing a permit to travel into state to see a dying loved one, et cetera, et cetera. When all of this ends, where does that leave us um, as a collective whole? Because the person that I've been standing next to for months and months and years, I actually probably have a very different understanding of freedom and, and ideology to that person. What would you suggest that we as Christians do? And what would you suggest people who might be tuning in who aren't Christians do to sort of try and bridge the gap within our own camp and our own ideologies? Yeah, that's a great question um, because you, you're, you're absolutely right um, in that let's take sort of the, the anti-mandates movement, which, I mean, you're a part of, I'm a part of. Um, we might be unified in what we're opposed to. And, you know, it, in, in a lot of respects, we are unified in things that we like as well, but there are also uh, huge differences. Uh, so how do Christians want to respond to that in terms of sort of maintaining a kind of a unity? Or at the very least, I, I would say, if not a unity, uh, a sort of a lack of, of very, of, of, um, of acrimonious um, uh, serious division uh, within the movement. The first thing I would say is, you know, all the all movements are going to have some divisions. Uh, the question will always be uh, the extent to which uh, we see those who disagree with us as simply um, uh, uh, people with whom we disagree, or as opponents, or even at worst enemies. And in terms of sort of, let's take the the anti mandates movement. Some would call it the pro-freedom movement. I tend not to use that term, and now I've explained to you why. <laughs> um, I think one thing I've noticed is that, for the most part, the most unifying figures in that movement, the peacemakers, are, are Christians. Uh, so, for example, I think an inc a brilliant spokesperson for that movement is Graham Hood. Now, Graham Hood has been attacked by other members of the movement, and I think quite scurrilously attacked by them because, frankly, I think they're trying to store up their own um, uh, their, uh, um, sort of their own following and their own sort of movement around their own name. And they sort of attacked Graham Hood. But Graham Hood has always been a model of peacemaking. Uh, he has always been a model of graciousness, of thoughtfulness, and of what 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 you might call a, a persistent but courageous 
moderation uh, in that he avoids uh, radical language on, on either side and just focuses on very practical realities. How can we get this message to the politicians? Uh, how can Australians work within the current system really, really smartly? And I see other uh, Christians in the movement who are, who are very much the same. So I, I would say Mac um, is, is very much the same, um, uh, you know, an outward Christian. And, and again, basically a peacemaker. Uh, and then there are others sort of in the more sort of social media filmmaking aspect, which, again, are very, very similar. And also Christians like uh, Topher Field. Obviously, I would, I would put you in this as well, Evelyn. And there are others. And, 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 and so... I think there's a, there's a unique responsibility for Christians within this movement to be the peacemakers, not to buy into the very acrimonious, uh, divisive, and almost sort of radical, let's overthrow the whole system uh, kind of rhetoric that gets sort of thrown in there by people who are trying to basically just get sort of easy support for themselves by offering easy answers to complex problems and really whipping people up into an emotional frenzy rather than actually seriously trying to inform them of the realities of, of the political legal situation in Australia and giving them constructive ways of moving forward without whipping them up into an emotional friendly frenzy and without trying to um, create uh, movements based around their own sort of cult of personality. And so I think Graham Hood is a wonderful example. Mac is a wonderful example. I think Monica Schmidt is, 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 is again, a wonderful example of this. And I think Topher Field is also very good as well. They are out to inform people of the reality of the situation. Uh, they are not out to divide. They're out to bring people together. And even when they are attacked by people, they don't bite back. And the great thing about that is that a lot of people find that very attractive because people are just over division. They're over negativity. Now, some people just thrive on it, Evelyn. As you know, there are some people that just thrive on division, on negativity, um, on rancor and on bitterness. Those kinds of people can't, there's really not much you can do with them. Um, they'll always be around but you should never sort of feed them. But the majority of people don't want that at all. They want constructive sort of peacemaking advice. And I think that is a unique role for Christians. And, and the fact of the matter is, Evelyn, that those individuals within the current um, anti-mandates movements overwhelmingly uh, tend to be Christians. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I have been noticing that as well. The first time I was asked to speak at one of the rallies in Sydney, um, I, I was asked to talk about freedom. I was asked to talk about ending the mandates, um, particularly for our kids. And I, I was sort of given the task of what do I say? Like I, I felt like I had a big responsibility to, to speak. Um, and, and I felt really honored and, and privileged that I was asked to do this as well. Um, I've actually never been a public speaker. It's just not what I do. So I was incredibly nervous, but I felt a real conviction. I've, I've opened up about this before. I was contacted by a girl that I went through the police academy with and she um, stumbled across my page. This is like 12 years after the fact, 2007 is when like her and I were there together. And she sort of said to me, Evelyn, I had no idea you were a Christian. Wow. I've just recently found God and I found your page and I'm so grateful. And as happy as I was to hear her journey, it struck me straight through the heart that she didn't know 
back then that I was a Christian because back then I would have thought that I was. I would have probably said that I was, but I was obviously not living as I should be and I wasn't as vocal as I should be. And I was of the mentality back then don't be a Bible basher, you know, that type of thing. Don't, don't, you know, talk about those things. Keep it, unless somebody asks you, Evelyn, don't, don't bring it up. And I sort of grew up, I guess, in that, you know, mentality and it disappointed me. So when I was asked to speak, I was like, you have a lot of wrongs to write, Evelyn. So when I gave the speech, um, I, I, I based it on Christ is King um, and that he's on the throne above our government and that, you know, the, the greatest threat to tyranny, to this void that the government are trying to fill is a, a group of people who pledge their allegiance to something greater than the government, something greater than ourselves, which is obviously Christ. Jesus is on the throne. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned Graham Hood because I was standing in the tent um, next to the stage and I was praying, like, look, my mouth was dry. I was so nervous, like, I'm going to be sick. I was like, please, God, just give me the courage to do this because there were lots of non-Christians who were talking and I was like, this is going to be a bit of a rude awakening, a bit of a shock. Um, but, Evelyn, if you'd never get invited again, at least you've gone out doing the right thing. And right before I spoke, Graham Hood, went up and he prayed and he, he dropped the J word. He dropped Jesus. And I was like, wow. And I felt that was God's grace. Like that Graham kind of stepped up. He, he sort of broke the ice and then it gave me the courage. It was infectious. And I was then able to have the courage as a Christian to get up on that stage after him and declare Christ as King. And so I think as Christians, like we need to have the courage. Don't be like Evelyn 12 years ago. Don't be like me who was like, don't talk about religion and politics. Don't talk about your faith, Evelyn, because people won't want to become a Christian if you bash them over the head with the Bible. And I think it's counterproductive. I'm not sure if you agree, but I think now more than ever, we're kind of ripe for this revival that you spoke about. And now is the time as Christians that we need to be bold and courageous. And I think that boldness and courage will be infectious. I'm not sure if you agree or you can relate to this. Yeah, no, no, I, I basically agree with you. And, and, and of course, it, it, it will be infectious, but not for everyone, but for a yeah. lot of people. And, and one of the traps that we need to be careful about falling into is thinking that everyone is going to agree, that everyone yeah. is going to be attracted uh, to the message of Jesus uh, and, and to how that is sort of exemplified in the lives that we live. Uh, there's no promise, in fact, quite to the contrary, that that will happen in Scripture. Uh, and so we mustn't think that we're doing the wrong thing when we see people put off by it, because that's to be expected. Um, but a lot of people uh, will be attracted by it, and they'll, be, and they'll inquire into it. And mm. that that is that is absolutely happening. And and, the, and as as I've been saying for a few months now, since I started going to these rallies, one of the things I was just amazed at was how Christian uh, so many of the speakers were, but also the incredible response from the crowds when people yeah. uttered um, the word God, or when people prayed, or when people uttered the name of Christ. That that yeah. just really amazed me. Um, and I remember your speech. In fact, I, I yeah, I certainly remember your 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 speech, and it was it was it was electric. And um, and I've also noticed that when Graham Hood preaches to crowds of in the tens of thousands, 
at at Canberra, it was at least a hundred thousand. He's just really, really well received. There are a lot of people there who are just craving something like that. And this yeah. is the thing that, you know, it, it may be the case that a lot of sort of baby boomers, Gen Xers, who were sort of brought up with some kind of Christianity, in a sense. Uh, they 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 got Christianity and consequently they've been inoculated against it. They just hear it and they just think, ah, I know that. Don't want it. Um, grew up with that. Not interested. I know all about that, and I've 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 made an informed opinion to reject it. But now you've got a lot of young people who did not grow up going to Sunday school, who did not grow up with a Bible in the home, and Christianity is actually something very new, um, mm. very countercultural very interesting for a lot of them. And so in that respect, I actually think that this is actually far more an exciting time now than probably what it has been over the last 30 years, where you're trying to convince people um, of the truth of scripture and the truth of Christianity. And their response is basically, oh, I know all that. Um, you know, I've had that. Don't need it again. Um, they've been inoculated in a sense against it. Um, and that's, that, that is actually one of the... Um, the really exciting things today. And, and just very quickly back to a point you made earlier about sort of theology and politics. I mean, my position on that is everyone's politics presupposes some kind of theological or metaphysical moral um, positions or, or positions about what it is to be a human being. The difference between, um, say, people like you and me, Evelyn, is that we're aware of it and we openly admit it. So when someone sort of says, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think we should uh, have a generous um, you know, refugee intake. And, and they would then maybe object to you saying that we should be um, thinking theologically about politics. Um, my response to them would be, well, why do you think we should have a, a generous refugee intake? And they might say something like, oh, because of human rights. Uh, my response to that would be, well, why do you believe in human rights? Now, at that point, it might get interesting. They might just say, oh, it's in international law. And then you would say something like, oh, so basically, if international law says A, you will believe A. And at that point, the more thoughtful ones will start, it'll, you know, it'll start to yeah. click with them, that they're not necessarily hooking their deepest moral beliefs onto a very, very um, <laughs> sturdy hook. Uh, then others might start saying, oh, no, 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 you know, human dignity. And then you could say, well, what gives humans dignity? Like, why should I think of you as having dignity? Why should you think as me as having dignity? Because science doesn't teach us anything about this. So, so where do you get this notion of human dignity from? And you try to get them to uncover, to admit, to see and then admit that in actual fact, the way they think about politics and policy too is itself grounded on sort of non-scientific, non-sort of rationalistic presuppositions that we can then invite them to start thinking a bit more deeply about. So I would say everyone's politics hinges on certain uh, theological slash metaphysical presuppositions. The difference is some people know it and admit it. Uh, other people don't know it and, and therefore don't admit it. That's very true. And I think it's it. it a lot of people's understanding of morality edges on the whole relativism idea, what's relative to the culture, what's relative to a large group of people. But I always like to challenge people, if you want to base your morality on, on relativism or subjectivism, for example, then you must be totally okay with people in different cultures around the world doing certain things that you're not happy with. For example, in the Middle East, they, throw, they can throw gays off buildings. 
And and if you honestly base your morality and your understanding and your the- theology, I guess, on um, these relativist, subjectivist type of ideas, then you're not allowed to judge that person's morality because that's relative to their culture. That's relative. And in their culture, that's what they deem as moral. So it kind of, I, it is, it's a good uh, conversation starter when, when you do talk about theology and politics and you try to get to where people's understanding of morality comes from. Most of the time, a lot of people, I don't know if you found, can't really answer that question or they struggle to sort of answer that question. It is a good thought provoking process, planting the seeds of that. It's probably a good segue into a topic I wanted to sort of discuss with you. Um, I'm happy for you to sort of respond to any anything I've said first, but I wanted to talk about church and state. And that's something you have spoken about quite, quite a lot of, and I don't, I don't want to butcher it, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on church and state and, and the sort of role that that has within our society, particularly Australia and, and the West. Yeah, I'm very happy to. Uh, very quickly, uh, two points. Um, relativists, I mean, yeah, the idea that sort of morality, you know, morality is relative to what you think it should be or what you would like it to be, that, that would be sort of my fleeting definition of relativism. Relativists are generally only relativists when it comes to their own morality towards others. They are not relativists when it comes to how other people treat them. So if you were to say to a relativist, would you like people to have a relativist attitude in terms of how they treat you as a human being, that they can treat you any way that they like, as long as it's relative to the way they want to do things? Only an idiot would say yes to that. So relativists tend to be relativists really only uh, in one direction, them sort of facing outwards, but they are not relativists when it comes to the other direction, other people behaving towards them. At, at, At that point, they become absolutists. No, give me the change uh, for the thing I've just paid for. Uh, you know, no, don't uh, stop me from speaking freely. No, don't put me in prison without uh, any kind of um, um, any, any any kind of actual real charge against me and things like that. The second thing, um, yeah, with sort of the other thing um, is that, yeah, you can get into discussions on sort of the foundations of morality. And what often happens is that we're not clear on what we're talking about. And so what we're talking about is the foundations of the authority of morality. Why should particular moral propositions have authority? And what often happens is that you get into a discussion with someone on the foundations of morality and they will change the topic very subtly. They'll start saying, well, you know, morality has evolved um, uh, over, uh, over, you know, um, tens of thousands of years in accordance with collective group needs. They have actually switched the topic from why morality gets its objective authority to uh, trying to explain historically where moral propositions have come from. And you can you can make an argument to the effect that certain moral propositions against rape, against torture and all sorts of things have arisen historically um, because they've been useful to certain societies and things like that. But that is merely an historical explanation for why people came to practice those things. It is not an argument for why those things have any authority or not. And so we've got to always be very clear that we're arguing about the foundations of the authority of moral propositions, not simply their their historical explanation. I'll leave that there. Yeah, so church and state. Uh, Yeah, a term sort of mangled, misused, abused. Uh, I mean, 
the, the actual expression of sort of a separation of church and state probably goes back at least as far as the 16th century. It's, it's a very, very old expression. It was used very, very famously, probably used most famously, actually, uh, by Thomas Jefferson in a letter that he wrote in 1802 to the Danbury Baptists in America. Um, but even Jefferson himself had taken it from an earlier uh, theologian named Roger Williams, uh, who wrote a book against religious persecution and sort of in favor of religious liberty. And, and Roger Williams said, you know, what we really need is this great strong hedge between the church and the state. And what Roger Williams meant by it and what Thomas Jefferson meant by it uh, is, as you suggested, um, protecting the church and protecting individual religious believers from the coercive power of the state in terms of stopping them from worshipping in a way that they would like to worship or you know, prohibiting them from being members of a particular kind of religion. So bottom line is that separation of church and state was at its heart about religious liberty. I'll read a little bit from uh, that letter from Thomas Jefferson. Um, Jefferson says to the, the Danbury Baptists in 1802, he says, yeah, believing with you, that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, and that the legislative powers of government reach our actions only and not our opinions. So basically saying that the government should not have the right to restrict uh, our religious views or to intervene in our religious lives. Now, there's always a caveat there, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's an understandable caveat, and it is uh, as long as our sort of religious activities don't um, violate uh, certain sort of, you know, what, you, what we would today call human rights and, 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 and sort of criminal laws and things. So, for example, um, no, I can't sacrifice my firstborn child and then plead to the court that I did it because it's my religion. I'm sort of, um, I'm, uh, I'm um, bringing back Baalism or something like that. You can't do that. Um, and then Thomas Jefferson later in the letter goes on to say that, you know, the, le the legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And what he means by that is placing one religion as the only right religion over all the others. And we need to remember that this is a period in, in European, uh, in, in, in Western history, where that was still the case in, in, in certain countries where you didn't have religious toleration. And through most of the thousand years before Thomas Jefferson is writing, um, there is no religious liberty. Um, and that's what he means by when we're not going to establish uh, religion, we're not going to make a coercive church, the one and only church over everyone via sort of the state. And we're not going to, he goes on to say, prohibit the free exercise thereof. And then he goes on to say, thus, in this way, building a separation, a wall of separation between church and state. So in this very short letter, the letter literally goes for about 100 words. Um, Thomas Jefferson equates separation of church and state with religious liberty. And so any, any attempt by governments to punish people for their religious beliefs or punish people for things that they say in accordance with their religion is in fact a gross violation of the separation of church and state, which is why some of these sort of, sort of anti-conversion therapy laws, you know, like in Victoria, they are actually gross violations of a separation of church and state because they seek to punish members of religious communities for 
uh, publicly expressing uh, religious views, and I would just say actually scientific factual views on, on, on the, na the nature of gender, and, and also their views uh, on the nature of same-sex attraction and, and gender dysphoria and things like that, and they're basically punishing them for those views. Uh, which is, you know, punishing people for religious views that they have again, which is a classic violation of the separation of church and state. So if we want a separation of church and state in Australia, then what we want to do is have very, very strong laws protecting freedom of religion, because that's precisely what separation of church and state is. And it's interesting because most people's understanding of church and state is the opposite. People think that um, we need to remove religion from from politics. We need to remove Christianity in particular from things because, you know, it's Christianity that's the tyrant. It's Christianity that keeps you binded and shackled and, and you know, I guess doesn't give you these freedoms, so to speak. But, yeah, if you look at the original, like you mentioned, 16th century church, church and state, it was created and it, it was sort of addressed under completely different precedent. Um, and it, it, I guess over time it's been lost in translation and I guess it's been manipulated by maybe people in, in politics who don't want Christianity there because then it allows them to be a tyrant. I mean, I, I honestly think that Christianity is what shackles the tyrants. And I think Christianity is what keeps the tyrants at bay because without Christianity and without those human rights, those basic human rights, that's when the government does become God. That's when the state does become the dictator. And I think that, um, removing your uh, Christianity from the state or religion from the state actually binds you to the alternative, which is the state itself. So you're now a slave to the government as opposed to someone who's being created in the image of God and has these basic human rights. So I find it fascinating um, that, you know, it has been manipulated, the understanding of it and people's understanding. If I was to go on the street and ask an everyday person, what's your understanding of church and state? There is absolutely Absolutely, no doubt in my mind that they would have any clue its original, its original sort of meaning. And you look at the Puritans and how they went to America from from the beginning. That was be, exactly as you said. They believed that their religion, they believed that their beliefs were being, um, I guess. Uh, prevented by the state. So they went over there to try and break away from those shackles and sort of start again. So it all kind of goes back to the original meaning of it. Have you seen its manipulation over time? Have you uh, seen um, the misunderstanding from people about what church and state actually is? Oh, yeah. there's been. In fact, there's been an awful lot written on it and you can pretty much date the period where the, the, the term separation of church and state starts to become manipulated for what we might call ideological secularist ends. Uh, it actually starts in about 19, it starts in 1947 with a particular uh, Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, a, a particular SCOTUS uh, decision in the Supreme Court in 1947. And from 1947 onwards, the, the expression of separation of church and state comes increasingly to mean um, basically removing all uh, expressions of religion from all uh, public institutions, uh, which was not what separation of church and state was ever really meant to mean. It was just meant to mean that the government doesn't coerce people into being or not being a particular religion. Uh, but, it, but from 1947 onwards, it became used to justify, you know, not funding uh, uh, school buses for Catholic schools, 
uh, not allowing uh, prayers in schools, even voluntary prayers in schools, um, people using it to not to, 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 to um, ban Bible, voluntary Bible study groups in schools, people using it to, to ban the display of the Ten Commandments in, in certain local legislatures uh, in, in America and things like that. So you can, pretty, you can pretty well date it actually after World War II. And like I said, there's been a lot written on it, and it's, it's very interesting and very complex. One of the things that was behind these, the sort of what you might call the, the ideological secularization interpretation of the separation of church and state was actually a strong anti-Catholicism. And what was happening was that a lot of people were trying to use the notion of a separation of church and state as much as possible to try to what they to, to sort of staunch and stamp out what they thought was a growing influence of Catholics in America. And, and that was actually often the case in Australia historically as well. So it's very complex. And, and sort of the book to read on it in the US case, there's Damon Mayrell's uh, Damon Mayrell wrote an excellent uh, uh, compare comparison book on Australia and the US. I forget the I forget the actual name of the book, but um, it came out with Cambridge University Press a few few years ago. Um, uh, uh, Philip Hamburger's massive two volume book on the separation of church and state in America is absolutely uh, brilliant, uh, and there are other sort of really fantastic books on this, um, both in the Australian context and the American context. But yeah. Uh, very much a misunderstood uh, context. And in the case of Australia, in, in fact, what separation of church and state tended to mean uh, was, was in fact the cessation of, of government funding of the churches. Because as you, as you may know, from 1836 onwards, starting in New South Wales and basically spreading to all the other colonies, governments were funding the, the building of churches and, the, 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 and paying the stipends of clergy. Uh, to get as many clergy over to Australia and build as many churches as possible. And those who were opposed to that, and often they were opposed because they didn't like the idea of the, the colonial government's funding Catholicism, and, and they also thought it was un, unfairly skewed towards the Church of England, those opposed to it called, called for what they called a separation of church and state. But again, what they didn't mean was a, a sort of uh, a separation of religion and politics. They didn't mean that at all. And that's one of the key uh, the, the key confusion in this whole debate, Evelyn, I'm glad you brought it up, is confusing separation of church and state, which is making sure that the state doesn't coercively dominate over the church, and to also make sure that certain things that happen sort of in the late Middle Ages don't happen again, like popes raising up armies to overthrow rulers in particular regions. That was, a, that was not an uncommon thing to do. Um, as opposed to... Um, the separation of religion and politics. Uh, and that's a concept that, that I can't even really imagine is possible. How do you separate religion and politics? That would mean that politics in all its forms, from lobbying, from voting, to sort of passing laws, public debates, these are all aspects of politics that none of that can possibly be influenced by religion. The only problem with that is you would need a different a different world for that to work because the fact of the matter is that people on planet earth uh, are you know uh, most of them are actually religious and even in australia you've got enough of them who are who are outwardly very religious to make that an impossible ideal the fact of the matter is as long as you have religious citizens then you're going to have people entering into politics with religious beliefs now you might say okay they can come into politics but they're just not allowed to vote 
or do things in accordance with their deepest religious beliefs. Okay, so what do we call someone who goes into politics and sets aside their deepest um, sort of um, most meaningful beliefs? What do we call someone like that? We call them a scoundrel. You know, that's what we call scoundrels, people who will just vote uh, on, some, on, on principles completely different to their deepest sort of moral, uh, metaphysical beliefs. If you have religious citizens, then you're going to have religious people going into politics, and that aspect of who they are is going to express itself in the laws that they make. Um, if you don't like it, um, then, you know, that's, you know, there's really not much you can do. Maybe go live in China, uh, maybe go live in North Korea, in places where there really is actually a separation of religion and politics. Um, but if you don't like that, then I'm afraid you're stuck with it because religion is a pretty natural aspect of, of, of what it is to be a human being. And consequently, as long as you have human beings involved in voting, involved in lobbying, involved in public discourse, involved in going into politics, involved in making laws, there is going to be a religious influence there. Uh, it's very, very human. And attempts to really separate the two, genuinely really separate the two, always require quite a lot of government coercion and surveillance. Uh, and of course, it, it must, because you are trying to repress and exclude something that is actually deeply human. And you can only do that through inordinate coercion and surveillance. George Washington once said that the two pillars that uphold a nation is religion, which was Christianity when he wrote this, and morality. And um, I, I sort of mentioned to you before we before we started recording that you know society, particularly in the West, has built itself on those two pillars, on religion and morality. And when you take those things away, the society that you've built will essentially fall because everything's been instituted or voted in or, um, you know, gone through all, all the various hoops and loops and jumps based on those two pillars. So when you remove one or the other or both, what's going to happen? And I, I honestly think that we're starting to see the pillars crack, which is why society that's sitting on top of those two pillars is starting to become unsettled. The ground is starting to move. Um, and I certainly think that it's beneficial to everybody to have an understanding that the West in particular has been built on those two foundations, those two pillars. And as you mentioned, if you don't like the two pillars of morality and religion um, for society, then yeah, go to North Korea, go to China, go to these other places that don't have those foundational pillars uh, because that's the alternative that you'll be left with. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, but I, I'd actually be even bolder. I, I don't even want to talk about the, the foundations of sort of what we might call modern Western society in terms of religion and morality. Let's call a spade a spade. We're talking about Christianity. Mm. Uh, what was our religion? Well, it was varieties of Christianity uh, in the West, mainly uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. And what was the morality grounded in? Well, basically, it was grounded in you know, biblical teachings on what it is to be a human being, how we ought to relate to one another. And so uh, it sort of gets back to an earlier point that I made. Um, I mean, I, I basically agree with, with Washington, but there's almost an assumption there that, 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 that a country can abandon religion and it can abandon morality. Of course, that never happens. What happens is religions change and moralities change. Um, so what has happened today uh, is that, that we are no longer a society uh, with religion and morality? Well, of course not. 
um, we, we have both religions, plural, and moralities, plural. The, the big change is that they've become untethered, they've become de-anchored uh, mm. from the historic source and from the historic religion and, and morality, which both of which are sort of biblical, uh, biblical expressions of Christianity in their various sort of institutional expressions over, over time. And so what has happened is that the morality has shifted, the religion has shifted, and we're seeing the fruits not of the absence of religion and morality, but we're seeing the fruits of the rise of alternative religions and moralities mm. again, in some respects, uh, imitating uh, Christianity and drawing on Christianity. And why wouldn't they? This is history. Um, no age completely ends. Um, you don't just start anew without drawing on something before you. Marxism is, of course, the classic example. And I alluded to this actually when I spoke about Black Lives Matter, which is very much an expression of what we might call cultural Marxism. But take the ideas of Karl Marx. Why were they so appealing in an age where among the intellectuals, belief in Orthodox Christianity was declining? Well, in in the same way that when, when you you know when you've broken up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, the, the the person closest to them is also very appealing. When you're on the rebound, um, Marxism really reflects Christianity in some very very strange ways. Uh, it, it has this belief that everything was going swimmingly until the introduction of something horrible, private property, and then after that, society is thrown into turmoil and warfare and conflict. But have no hope because a Messiah will come. It is the working class and the Messiah will come and, and, and bring about a day of, of um, judgment, the revolution. And after that day of judgment where uh, the innocent are rewarded and the wicked are punished, you will have sort of this everlasting consummation communism. Is it such a surprise that a message like that was appealing to an intellectual class that was in the process of abandoning its Christianity? Is it so surprising that they would have latched onto something that was very, very familiar with the thing that they were losing and throwing away? Of course it's not. And that's precisely what's happened in America uh, and, and, and in much of the UK with the decline of Christianity over the last 40 years, what are they latching on? Well, they're latching on to cultural Marxism. Consequently, you know, in America, um, a lot of these young people who probably went to church when they were young, and maybe a lot of them still go to church now, but you know, is it a surprise that they've latched onto a, a, a movement which says, confess your racism, uh, proclaim how racist the world is, go out there and tell people how racist it is, go make converts. And it, it's not a surprise um, at all. And so, um, we, no society can do without religion and morality. The question is, what is the, what are the religions and what are the moralities, and are they grounded in in, in reality? Uh, the idea that, that that religion and morality are important goes all the way back to Livy. Livy said the same thing. The, the sort of the first century BC and AD Roman historian, when asked why has why have Romans become weak. Uh, basically, his answer was, and why is the Republic collapsing? His answer was because we, we've sort of abandoned our, our sort of stern religious ways. Now, St. Augustine came along sort of 400 years later and said, well, kind of Livy, but the problem is that the Roman religion was always so bad anyway, and your gods were so immoral that it was destined to wind up um, decrepit anyway. So Augustine had a very interesting critique as well. And Augustine's view was, was, was kind of the same as I would like to think the one I'm expressing. It's not that people or societies abandon religions and moralities. What happens is they adopt the wrong ones and it plays out. And that's precisely what's happened, certainly in the West over the last 70 years. We've sort of increasingly untethered the way we think about ourselves as humans um, from scripture. And everything that we've been talking about for the last sort of hour 
is playing out. But again, it's part of that Kairos moment because it's just it's just not going very well and it's going to actually get worse. People are not going to find the sorts of meaningful uh, relationships um, that they've historically enjoyed. Uh, they're not going to find it in technological encounters with one another. They're not going to find it in virtual reality. They're not going to find it in pornography. Um, people are not going to be able to keep up the facade uh, that they are a particular sex other than the one that they were born. And you're not going to be able to continue to convince children that they don't need to know who their mother or father is. All of this is a house of cards that is going to collapse. And the Kairos moment is that as it is collapsing and people are looking for what went wrong and looking for the, the, the path forward, that us Christians are ready with answers, but not just with answers, and which could just sound glib, but that we are ready with our own individual lives, families, and institutions in order. That we as individuals uh, live upright lives, uh, free of all the, um, the uh, addictions uh, that are tearing through much of the Western world right now, that our families are intact, that they are loving and that they are places of safe haven for other children and for other people to look at and just say, wow, I wish I had it together like that. Not to suggest that all Christian families are, are perfect. Of course, they are not. There are degrees of, of, of all of this. And then finally, our institutions as churches are places where people um, can feel welcome, uh, places where they'll feel safe and, and where they don't feel exploited. That will be the most powerful um, declaration that we can make, uh, backing up the gospel message uh, that Jesus is risen and that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is coming back. It's an incredible opportunity, which is why I actually get excited when we talk about it, because it's actually in our power through the Holy Spirit to actually have our individual lives in order, to have our families in order, and to have our institutions in order. And if that is something that is within our power to do, and that will be the single greatest sort of humanly speaking uh, way to take advantage of this Kairos moment and declare the risen Christ, declare light in a dark world, then that's something that we should all as Christians be excited about. Absolutely. The West can be saved, but it has to be saved through the cross, through Christ. And um, I, I love everything that you said. I feel like that's a perfect moment to end the interview on. But before I do close, where can people find you? Where can people uh, follow you? Look up, you know, your your, your authored books, uh, look up what you're doing online um, and yeah, maybe how people can, can reach out to you if they have any more questions. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of social media, uh, go to, I'm on Instagram, uh, Stephen Shavura. Uh, I'm on Telegram, Stephen Shavura. I'm on Twitter as well. I'm on Facebook. And, uh, you know, uh, if you just sort of Google my name, you'll come up with articles and things like that. If you go to the Campion College staff website, uh, there are links to many of my articles uh, in the Australian and things like that. And there are links to other interviews that I've done. If you just bash my name into YouTube, you'll find stuff. But I'd love to see some of you follow me on Telegram and Instagram. I'm, I'm also on TikTok. They haven't banned me yet, but I'm pretty close <laughs> to it. I, I hope that you live on. I do love your videos um, in you in your uh, workout gear in the car. I feel like that's your office for TikTok, uh, but you always have some incredible things to say and I always appreciate it, but I particularly appreciate you making the time and coming on here for the podcast today. I can't wait for this to be released so everybody can hear everything that you said. So thanks again. Thanks a lot, Evelyn, and I love the work that you're doing with the Mighty Cauldron Pool. Keep it up and God bless. Oh,